Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. A lot of us feel insecure in the bedroom. Sexual insecurity can take a lot of different forms, but it often centers around either our physical appearance or our sexual performance. For example, you might have concerns about your overall body shape or size, the appearance or smell of your genitals, the way you sound during sex, the length of time it takes you to orgasm, or your level of skill as a sexual partner. We are often our own harshest critics, and all of that negative self-talk can really put a damper on your sex life. Not only can this make sex itself less satisfying and pleasurable because we can't get out of our heads, but it can also lead to sexual avoidance. Sometimes we find it easier to avoid sex entirely than to confront our insecurities, and that can spill over into broader relationship problems. Dealing with sexual insecurity is easier said than done, but there are a lot of practical things you can do to make this easier. And that's what we're going to be exploring today. We're going to talk all about how to cope with sexual insecurity, build up your sexual self-confidence, and have more pleasurable sex. My guest is Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez a sociologist, relationship and communication coach, and author of the fantastic book, From Madness to Mindfulness, Reinventing Sex for Women. She co-hosts the Sex Talk with Clint and the Doc podcast and has a YouTube channel called In the Den with Dr. Jen that has received millions of views. This is going to be a helpful conversation for taking your sex life to the next level or getting things back on track. And we're going to jump right in after the break. Before we dive in, get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can give you the confidence you need. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Simply sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped direct to your door. No doctor's visit and no pharmacy waiting line. As I've said on this show many times before, there's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information, and thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, Jen, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, I am so happy to be here. I was just thinking, too, like with your intro, like your voice is so like sexy and good for this. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like even just listening to you talk about sex, I was like, I feel sexier listening to you. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this podcast can be, uh, you know, a little bit of foreplay for, you know, sort of setting the right mood. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I've been following your work for a very long time. We've been Facebook friends forever, but we've yet to cross paths. So I'm super excited to have this opportunity to finally speak with you. But before we dive into the main topic of the day, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your professional backstory. So specifically, how did you get into the world of sex education? What is it that drew you to this area? Yeah. I mean, so I am, I live in San Diego now and I've been here for 18 years, but I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a small town in Pennsylvania and was definitely raised a good girl, quote unquote, you know, with all those messages of, you know, following the rules and being good. I was raised Catholic and uh, we did not talk about sex. And so when I went to college and my sophomore year, my roommate became a sexual health peer educator. We go around to the dorms and do safer sex talks and condom demonstrations. This was at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and she was having so much fun with the group. And so I was like, well, you get to talk about sex. Like, that's cool. Uh, even though I wasn't doing things, but I wasn't, I wasn't having intercourse yet because I was like, that's risky. But I, I wanted the public speaking skills. That was actually one of the main reasons I joined. So I could stand up because I figured if you could stand up and talk about sex, you could probably talk about anything. And then I wouldn't have to worry about being so nervous about giving my presentations in classes, like group presentations at the end of the semester that were like horrifying to me. And then at this point, that's like 28 years ago, 29 years ago. And then I became fascinated about how people make decisions around sex. 
and lack of decisions around sex and in drinking and gender role socialization and yeah, how people are engaging in sexual activity that actually isn't very good or it's not something they're talking about. They're not using protection. They're scared the next morning. So it was, all these factors were just fascinating to me. So that's how I initially got into it. And then I went and I got my PhD in sociology, and that was specifically looking at HIV prevention programs, actually targeting adult women around New York State. And at this time, I was getting involved with the vaginal monologues and acting and doing directing. And so like the activism aspect of sexual health and women's sexuality and always running with that as in as many directions as possible. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. It sounds like you've done it all. And I love your story and especially the part about just how public speaking specifically around sex can really make you more comfortable talking about everything. You know, oh, everybody amazing. had the experience yeah. of being a sex educator. Like we would all be in a very open society and have an easy time talking about everything. Oh, it's so much better. Yeah. And because it's, it's, you know, there's other aspects of vulnerability that I had to learn and emotional vulnerability, let alone in public and sharing personal things. But yeah, we get a, you know, we get a leg up compared to other folks and we don't <laughs> blush talking about sex in public. <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to think of a topic that makes me <laughs> blush anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk sexual insecurity. As I said at the top of the show, there are a lot of things that people can feel insecure about in the bedroom. But one of the most common problem areas centers around just how we feel in our own body. And when we don't feel attractive or sexy, we sometimes avoid sex completely, or we only have sex under very limited circumstances, such as only doing it in the dark or while wearing a t-shirt or something else that covers up whatever we feel insecure about. So let's start with the topic of body insecurity. I'm guessing that this comes up a fair amount in your practice. And I'm curious what you advise people to do when they just don't feel good about the way they look overall. And this is getting in the way of their sex life. Yeah, I call body image insidious. So one of my specialty areas is, is women's sexual empowerment, especially if somebody that was assigned female at birth was raised with all of those messages, and, you know, had all those messages of what it is to be a female around their bodies and sex imposed on them. And then as adults identify as women and trying to come to terms with all of this and have healthy relationships. So yeah, it's insidious because I think often I'll say from women specifically from, from birth, it can be imposed on us that we are being judged for how we look, whether we want to or not. So it can't not be really deeply tied to our sense of self-worth and who we are in this world, which means it's, it's not an easy thing to overcome. So I teach mindfulness skills around that with folks that are struggling with their body image. First of all, them noticing when they are judging themselves, because often it's just a running narrative in the background mm -hmm. and folks don't even realize it's going on all the time. And so they'll pause and, and look at that story and that narrative you're running in your head. Be kind to yourself, you know, because mindfulness is both noticing what's happening in the moment, but also not judging yourself. And I say just Take it to the point of actually being kind towards yourself and compassionate. And then actively choose to switch to focus on something you do appreciate about yourself. You know, I have folks do activities where they write a list of 20 things that they actually appreciate about their bodies, which most folks get to maybe like three <laughs> or four. <laughs> so to get to 20 is a push. But I mean, everything from the fact that like, you know, you got out of bed this morning. You know, your legs were strong enough to do that for women that have given birth, you know, or, or fed a baby on their breasts. Like, that's amazing. And we're so often, and you know, and, and this is all genders at this point, we're really taught to focus more on how our body looks to others, how it appears to others versus the functionality of what it provides for us. And our bodies do freaking amazing things. So that is an ongoing mindfulness activity of catching yourself, choosing to switch to something that you're grateful for, and then literally feeling that gratitude like in your heart, that sense of warmth and expansion, like when we feel really grateful or appreciative of something um, or we're in awe of something, like really feel it in you because it'll anchor in better that way. And then, you know, and maybe every 30 seconds, you got to do that <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> 
but you're basically you're retraining your brain your brain is is stuck on a very negative loop and slowly bit by bit you can retrain it and i always you know tell folks too i just turned 49 yesterday and i live in san diego where it is in a beach town nonetheless where it is young and beautiful beach bodies all year long <laughs> and that is not what my perimenopausal 49 year old body can handle so it gets insidious but just to bit by bit focus on on what we what we appreciate about ourselves and all that our body has provided for us and can do and continue to do because you look back 10 years ago and I'll be like oh what was I complaining about and then 10 years ago I was like I should you know look back so keep thinking that in 10 years you're gonna look back and be like oh yeah let me appreciate what I have now so you know yeah. taking that future view on it yeah, I think that's all great advice. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. As you mentioned, this can be a, a long journey. It might require lots of reminders up front, lots more work up front, but it does get better over time. And you do have to find some way to appreciate the, all the great, wonderful, amazing things about your body and also recognize that the things that you're concerned about, other people might not even notice at all. You know, so many of us just we sit there and we perseverate on this one body part or feature and we think that there's something wrong with it and no one else in the world, not even our partners notice that. Right. So this is kind of self-imposed in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I had a friend saying that recently. She's like, yeah, she's like these creases on my forehead. And I was like, Oh, I was like, didn't notice that before as I get close to her and look, I was like, ah, okay. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> didn't mean anything to me. So yeah. Yeah. And I think another part of it too is ditching the social comparisons. You know, you, you said you live in a beach town and you know, oh, you've my got Lord. all of these people with unattainable bodies, like sitting around you all the time. And it's like, if you're <laughs> always comparing yourself to these other people, you're going to feel bad about yourself. And so it, it's not about the social comparison and it's about getting comfortable in your own skin and appreciating your body for what it is. Yeah. I mean, and you, you're, you're a social psychologist, so you know this, we're kind of programmed to do that as humans <laughs> to yep. compare. So it is like, we need to override what our brains will kind of naturally default to. But again, like we can do that, you know, if something's really dragging us down, if we practice mindfulness skills, which is a practice and it is skills and it is being kind to ourselves, we can retrain our brains. Yeah. So since we're on the topic of appearance concerns, you know, related to this is genital appearance concerns, which is mm. a whole other issue. There are a lot of women who don't like the way their vulva looks, perhaps because they think their labia are too large or asymmetrical. And there are a lot of men who think their penises are too small. And across genders, a lot of people worry about things like genital smell and taste, and they try to cover them up with body washes and sprays and other products. And so, you know, how do we deal with genital insecurity? What do you think people need to know when it comes to feeling more confident down there? First of all, know that like you've been fed a whole lot of BS <laughs> and that the, the variety of what genitals look like is infinite and just owning like Yup, this is what I got. This is what I look like. Like taking that attitude seriously because, well, it's there to procreate, but it's also there to give you pleasure, you know? And if you're viewing it as, an, as the enemy or something you're disgusted by or something that, um, you know, embarrasses you, uh, it, you're going to be disconnected from that ability to experience pleasure and that ability to be able to connect with others through your genitals. So, you know, refocusing in that way and no like their genitals they all look weird i mean like if we, maybe we, i think genitals need a new like branding campaign <laughs> genitals they all look weird and they all look you know weird in different ways and that's the beauty of them so i mean just knowing that that first point because right because of the prevalence of pornography you know in the past what 15 years or something that it's so accessible we get this idea of the sort of perfect version of what bodies should look like and do look like. And that is not what they look like out there. There truly is a, a, a massive variety. So I think just a reframing of that, of, of knowing that off the bat, 
I think would be really helpful because I think many young adults don't know that. Otherwise, I mean, you were mentioning smells and all. I, I mean, be clean. I, <laughs> you know, like, yes, showering, good. Otherwise, all type of shit that you add down there, like, it, it, they're all marketing ploys. Primarily marketing ploys to make you feel insecure about your genitals and then make you spend money on their products. And some of those products, I know specifically for women, can irritate the, the tissue of your vulva or of your vagina and then can actually cause problems that weren't there in the first place. So yeah. that's my overall advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it speaks to a really important point that, you know, we often like to blame everything on porn. But if you look at a lot of these companies that are pushing genital oh, hygiene products, yeah. right, they're predicated on the idea of creating and cultivating the sense of insecurity in the public, oh, absolutely. So that they go out and spend money on their products. And so yeah. it, I think it's important to, to sort of keep that in mind. And it poses this extra challenge in terms of us coming to self-acceptance because we're just always encountering these messages that tell us that we're inferior or inadequate in some way and we need to change. And I think that's yeah. where more sex ed can really come in handy. And, you know, for example, yeah. if you have concerns about penis size, it's about understanding, okay, so what is the average and what is the range? And, you know, odds are most people with penises are going to fall into this relatively narrow range and yeah. there's nothing wrong with you. And, you know, the same is true with the appearance of the vulva, you know, it, it can vary pretty widely in terms of Gosh, you yeah. know, the appearance of the labia and, you know, whether the lips protrude and whether they're symmetrical or asymmetrical. And so, you know, sort of consulting the research, consulting, you know, even art projects that try to document diversity and variability in genital appearance can be useful and helpful for just recognizing that, hey, there's not just one way to look down there. And so when you sort of reset those expectations, I think that can really be key in terms of developing that body confidence that you need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yeah, exposed seeking out, like, cause I know years ago, one of the first things I ever saw was the petals project of photography project, like sepia toned and a photography book. And I used to use that in my college classes, like, you know, probably 16 years ago. Just And I would put the slides up on the screen, petals, close-ups of women's vulvas. And I would have students do, like, they would be journaling throughout the semester. I think this was a women in health class. And I would put the slides up on the screen and I would have this massive variety of what women's vulvas look like up close. And you could hear a freaking pin drop in the room. And I had no idea what the students were thinking or what was going on. And then I'd read their journals afterwards. And they were like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And then second of all, they're like, it never occurred to me they could be beautiful, like <laughs> that anybody would even think our genitals looked beautiful. So, yeah, that is a massive education in and of itself. And now there's like tons of resources out there like that, let alone just all the little cute sketch drawings on Instagram. Yeah. And then there are also apps and websites like OMG, yes, yes. You know, which you can kind of go and see that diversity up close on your phone in the privacy of your own home. And, you know, it's just sort of understanding that, hey, you know, you're probably normal and you don't have anything to be worried about or concerned about. Well, and normal, quote unquote, normal in that it's all normal because it's yes. all in the range of what is human. And the thing is that maybe you fall on, you know, one tail end or the other and like, all right, figure out how to work with that. You're like, this is what I got. <laughs> I could still be an amazing lover with everything I've got because being a good lover is so much more than what our genitals look like or the size of our genitals. Yep. And hey, you know, it's also the case that somebody can have you know, the, the quote unquote, perfect genitals in terms of like matching the cultural ideal, and right. they can be a terrible lover, like just because your body is a certain way, doesn't mean you're going to be good at sex, it doesn't mean sex is going to be more pleasurable, or anything Not like that. And so I think you're Not so right, that there are many different ways to be a lover, there are many different ways to have sex. And so it's ultimately about expanding your mind in that way. Yeah, being creative, showing up. Because I love when I get the chance to talk to college students about like their misconceptions of what great sex is <laughs> and what, what good sex really is. I was like, when it really, you know, comes down to being a good lover, like you are present with the person that's in front of you. You're not making assumptions about them. You are attuned to them. 
if they're, you know, in it or not in it and care about that, <laughs> you know, consent matters. Um, but you're really like you're being organic and sensual and figuring out what specifically brings them pleasure. Like, mm, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, what you said about being present is so important and, you know, also equally crucial is that element of being creative, being present, yes. being creative. That's really the key to yeah. great sex. So let's talk about sexual performance, anxiety, and insecurity for a moment. So even if you feel good about your body and your genitals, you might worry about other things during sex, such as the way you sound or what your face looks like. And sometimes we over-monitor ourselves during sex to make sure that we look and sound sexy the whole time. And when you're in this state of hypervigilance, you know, that can make it really hard to relax, to experience pleasure, and to have an orgasm. So how do you deal with this kind of insecurity and really get out of your head during sex so that you can be in the moment? Oh, you know, over the years, there's been those projects around people's O faces and like yep. what they in the height of ecstasy, what they look like. And you cannot tell if they're experiencing pleasure or pain or like they look in agony at times. Nobody looks, quote unquote, sexy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, because I wasn't I wasn't raised, you know, watching sexual images that much and therefore sort of studying what people look like when they're in sexy mode. So every once in a while it crosses my mind and I'm like, oh, you need to get that out of your head because that is absolutely, it's self-consciousness that causes performance anxiety because we get in our heads and we get worried and we get in an anxiety loop. We're absolutely not present with pleasure that our body's feeling. We're not present with our partner emotionally. We are just in a loop of worrying about ourselves. So again, like that is a that's a retraining of yourself through awareness and mindfulness skills of noticing that you're doing it. Nobody is there taking your picture for Instagram. So like, <laughs> let it, let it go. And I'm pre pretty sure your partner is not like assessing whether you're looking appropriately sexy or something. That's a battle we could never win. So, I mean, and I guess if you've got like mirrors above you or something, you could be watching yourself, which then could be sexy also, but point aside, that level of self-consciousness and like self-monitoring absolutely works against desire and arousal and orgasm, let alone, you know, at the core of my work is teaching folks what, what the depth of intimacy really means, which is really being open and raw and messy in all of our human beauty and messiness with another human being, allowing them to do the same, which is, which is a very vulnerable thing to do of really dropping into the moment. And if we're stuck in our heads worrying about how we're performing, how we're looking as we're performing, we're not present. And so we can't enjoy it and we can't connect with others at a deeper level, like the whole point of why you're there. Yeah. And this ties in with what Masters and Johnson called spectatoring, where you're really sort of stepping outside yourself in the moment during sex and you're analyzing your performance or how you look or how you sound and all these other things. And when sex becomes this performative thing, that can really undermine pleasure and satisfaction and make it harder to have an orgasm. And, you know, this also ties in with something that we hear about a lot in the world of sex therapy, which is the orgasmic imperative, where, you know, the orgasm has to happen and we feel all of this pressure uh, to have an orgasm and to have it at the right or correct time. You know, there, there's a lot of people who have anxiety about orgasming too quickly or taking too long to orgasm. And, you know, just even having an orgasm at all, a lot of people feel like they're a failure if they don't have one. So what would you recommend around, you know, all of this pressure to orgasm? How should we yeah. be thinking about that instead? One thing I like to do, and I've done with this with clients before, specifically, I can remember a while back, this heterosexual uh, married couple I was working with, and I was um, talking to the husband and he was so upset. He's like, you know, my wife only sometimes has orgasms and she says she's okay with it and it doesn't bother her. And he's like, I can't, and he goes, and I think she's actually telling the truth. I think she means that, but I can't wrap my brain around it. So what I ended up doing is just drawing this big, I think I had a whiteboard and I drew this big circle. And I said, what I understand of, of many women's sexuality, although everybody's different. And what your wife is saying is that like, 
this, you know, part, a little portion of the circle is orgasm. Maybe it's a, you know, it's a, a decent sized portion of it, but there's all these other things in this circle of why she seeks sexual experiences with you or what she's looking for in intimacy overall. And an orgasm is one piece of it, but also is sharing a physical experience with you. Also is making sacred time for you guys away from everything else. Some of it is just experiencing pleasure overall in lots of ways that her body's still feeling pleasure and the nipple stimulation and, you know, and making you feel good. And that all of this is under this, this big umbrella and this big circle of why she wants to seek out sexual interactions with you and what it means to her. And all of that is that meaning matters. And it's, it's, you know, physical, mental, emotional, social, potentially spiritual depending on what that means to each person and couple. And so reframing it in that way was very helpful for him to realize this is like, it's a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So, I mean, it, putting an orgasm imperative on ourselves is not helpful because again, like that gets us in the head and in those anxiety loops, imposing it on a partner who isn't, you know, wanting the same thing, you know, because I, you know, I hear that from a lot of young women. They're like, oh, I mean, that's why a lot of young women fake orgasms with men in that because they feel like the man needs it to feel good about the sexual encounter and then that puts pressure on them and then they you know and then that blocks their even any chance of having an orgasm so then it works all against it and I was like wait what and so whose pleasure are you there for <laughs> like why are you in this encounter you know I think for especially for young women their orgasm can be relegated to not as important and I don't I don't want that message to be coming through, but I think it's important to look at generally in the big picture of what is most fulfilling, possibly fulfilling in a sexual encounter. It's many different factors and orgasms, one of them. And I think that that's a really smart way of reframing it, you know, where the orgasm is just one piece of the entire sexual encounter and there can be all other kinds of great things that you can get out of it. And an orgasm, when it happens, is a fantastic bonus. And yes, we would all love to have more orgasms. That sounds great. But I think sometimes we just focus so much on just that thing happening and it has to happen at this certain time. And that just creates all of this counterproductive self-talk and anxiety that interferes with our ability to experience pleasure. Yeah. And it ends up being a very like linear approach to a sexual encounter, which, you know, it has its time and place, <laughs> but particularly in, cause mostly what I work with is, well, I mean, I work with college populations and then I work with adults in long-term relationships. And so in long-term relationships, you know, if you're just looking to check a box, okay. But otherwise, you're going to need to bring in some variety and newness and freshness to keep things alive. Yeah. So try some nonlinear sex for once, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's another way to think of it. It's like, yeah. it, instead of sex being this sort of straight line where you're checking all of these boxes and it, you know, culminates in orgasm and that's where it ends. It's you're going off in different directions, exploring different things and sensations. So, so have some good nonlinear sex. Yeah. If you take a <laughs> snack break in the middle yeah, yes. it's so good. <laughs> yes, there are so many ways it could go. <laughs> so something else that a lot of people feel insecure about is their level of desire for sex. You know, some mm -hmm. people think, oh, I don't want enough sex. There's something wrong with me. Some people think, oh, I want too much sex. And like, again, there's something wrong with me. People also worry about their sexual frequency. Like, am I doing it enough? Am I doing it too much? Like, so... This gets at the bigger question of, you know, what, and I hate to use the term normal all the time, but, you know, when, it, yeah. when I say normal, we're talking about this wide range. It's not just one thing, but, <laughs> you know, how do you know if you have a normal level of desire or normal sexual frequency? So what do you say to people who think I'm not having enough sex or don't desire it enough, or I want it too much? Like, how do you figure out when it's actually a problem? Yeah. Well, so like with the questions you just phrased, my first starting point is like, what, what is your basis of comparison? You know, because you're saying I'm not having it enough or I'm having it too much like that. That implies a comparison. So and generally that's a relationship <laughs> that they're well, one, it's either a relationship that they're in with a partner than who who has much higher desire or much lower desire. Or there's also this comparison to and I get this question all the time. What's the normal amount for somebody who's this age? 
Yesterday, it was somebody that actually I got to speak, to, uh, do an intimacy talk for a group in Dubai virtually, which was fantastic. But that was one of the questions for a 35-year-old person with kids, what's a normal amount? And then when I'm talking to groups that are like in their 60s, they're like, for a 65-year-old, da, 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 what's the normal <laughs> amount? And I was like, I don't know. It's all the same answer and none of it matters. Is <laughs> my answer because there's no, I, I mean, there's no right or wrong amount of desire. What matters is what you want for yourself that makes you happy or fulfills you. And then also if you're in a relationship, then matching that with a partner, presumably a partner who you love and who respects you, you're not doing things because you feel forced to do them, but somebody who you realize has different needs and desires and is built differently than you and wired differently around desire. And, you know, how do you come to compromise and how do you think outside the box? Because the version of desire pretty much that we all learn is this spontaneous version that it should just hit us and it's easy and you're walking down the street and the breeze hits in just the right way and I'm horny now and you want to be with your, your partner, seek it out or go masturbate or something, you know, and that's one version. But in long-term relationships in particular, many folks have a more responsive version that's context-specific to what the interactions with their partner have been like. And so to answer your question, first of all, looking at what is, what's your comparison? Where is the problem? Is it a problem for you? Is it a problem for your partner? Is it a problem for your relationship? And getting clear on that and not, not judging yourself for wanting it too much or not a little, just knowing all of this is normal, physiological changes. Desire is a tricky, tricky thing. The endocrine system is a tricky, tricky thing that we still do not understand well or else we would have the pills that quote unquote fix all of our concerns. So getting clear on how you're defining it and why, and then, and then understanding that desire is so much more complicated than most of us know. And then my third approach with folks is really bringing in then creativity. If your desire isn't, let's say you're struggling with low desire in a long-term relationship. You used to have, you used to have really, you had great chemistry and good desire in the beginning. And then it's faded over the years, as is not uncommon. And then you went through pregnancy and you've had kids and, you know, and you've got a pandemic and all of these other things. And maybe you've got some body image concerns. Knowing all of that is normal. You're the physiological, the, you know, that, that, that cocktail, neurological, neurochemical cocktail of desire isn't there in the same way anymore for you. And looking at what are all the factors that are getting in the way and pushing the brakes on your desire and uh, addressing those. And then also just looking at then how do you be creative? How do you prime your own pump then? This matters to you for your own desire and it matters to you for your relationship. How can you take responsibility for figuring out what does get your juices going? So that's where, and then that's a, a realm that I, I work with with clients a lot of really like thinking outside the box about how to get their, their desire revved up again by bringing in newness and excitement and challenge and maybe playing with some power play and all sorts of things. Yeah, I think it's all great advice. And, you know, again, as with everything, when we're talking about what's normal when it comes to sex and sexual desire and the human body and general appearance and all these things, it's a wide range. And, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's a little bit different. And, you know, the important thing is, for example, when you're in a relationship, figuring out how to bridge the gaps that you have between you and your partner in terms of what it is that each of you want. Now, we have much more to discuss, including tips for better sexual communication and what to do when you're partnered with somebody who is sexually insecure. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. Promescent is a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out, and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. 
MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. And we're back. Let's talk about insecurity as it relates to our sexual wants. So something I've seen in my own research on sexual fantasy and desire is that a lot of people feel guilty and ashamed and embarrassed about their sexual turn-ons. And when people feel this way, they tend to keep that information to themselves rather than sharing it with their partner because they're worried about being judged. And the result is that they tend to be less sexually satisfied and they encounter more sexual difficulties. And related to this, you know, a lot of people feel insecure about their own sexual boundaries or limits. You know, for example, they might feel like I'm not an adventurous enough person because I like vanilla sex, or maybe I want to use condoms, but my partner doesn't. And when people feel insecure about their own boundaries, sometimes they agree to do things they don't really want to do. And rather than standing up for themselves, they compromise their boundaries to avoid conflict or to please a partner. So I want to get your take on, you know, how do you navigate sexual communication? You know, there are really two parts of this. One is how do you sort of build up that courage to be vulnerable and say what you want, and then also feel empowered to say, you know, these are my boundaries and limits, and these are the things I'm not going to compromise on. So, I mean, the first place my head went when you were talking about having the courage to say what you want, and then you've got some fantasies desires and things you'd like to try, but you're afraid to bring it up with your partner. I mean, which is valid fears because in in our society overall, we could be pretty judgmental and shaming of basically what it is. Somebody says something sexual that makes us uncomfortable and therefore we then push it back on them and shame them or judge them or stigmatize them for saying what they said or wanting what they want. So, um, you know, that shame piece underlies so much of it. And then we, we shut down and it makes sense. We want to, we want to emotionally protect ourselves. So, you know, so that's a first place to look. Are are you with a partner who would, who would do that? If you are going to bring up a conversation, can you work on saying, Hey, can we work on like, I got some difficult things I want to talk about just a few minutes, you know, and starting with a short amount of time, just a few minutes. Can you just listen I'm not saying we have to do any of these things. I'm not saying we have to try any of these things, but I realize I've been pushing it down. And then that keeps me actually distant from you. And I want to talk about these things. Please just just hear it with an open mind and a kind mind and, and reminding the person I'm not imposing any of this on you. So that would be one way to bring up a conversation like that, make it small, make it short, actually put some boundaries around it and make some requests around it and make the, your partner feel safe, that they're not going to be expected to go do some stuff that then scares them, you mm-hmm. know? Another thing is, I mean, we've got technology for this. So the, the website of mojoupgrade.com, being where you can sit down on different computers with your partner and you can answer all of these things that you may be interested in. And then they send you an email and it shares where you have the overlap of interest. So that could be one way because you could go, hog wild with all of this stuff you're afraid of your partner knowing and maybe there's going to be a tiny little places of overlap that you didn't know was going to be there and so but it's it's a you know you, you don't have to be vulnerable with your partner if you're too afraid to do that if you don't feel like you're ready for that but then you could find out where you have some overlap potentially of new things to try and then this piece of boundaries and limits you know i i always talk with folks about our comfort zones that you know are are very comfortable you know, very comfortable sofas and they're cozy and we've got our blankets and our good pillows and stuff like that. But they serve as cages for us because they limit our exploration of what else is possible. And it's that zone just outside our comfort zones is really where like the juiciness in life is, in intimacy, in relationships is. But that's scary. And so that takes courage to be vulnerable in that way. And we want to choose to do it with partners who are going to honor that we are stepping outside of our comfort zones and not push us so far outside our comfort zone that's disrespectful. And that's 
it is like we have to know ourselves and trust ourselves to be able to play, start playing in this zone outside our comfort zone and trust that we're not going to be pushed to go too far by someone else. And that's, you know, some of that comes with age, personal growth, knowing ourselves, mindfulness practices, meditation, all of these things help us know ourselves and trust ourselves at a deeper level. And then also fundamentally knowing you have a right to your boundaries. You have a right to put up a boundary around integrity around your values or boundaries around just what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. And then also, no, it's not, you don't lose your sense of identity if you're willing to try things that are outside those zones, but still feel safe to you. Mm -hmm. You know, because you might try something, you're like, I don't have any interest in this. I don't want it done to me, but my partner's interested. And like, I could go into that with some curiosity, as long as I could just be like, whoa, whoa, full up. I got to, <laughs> I got to tap out for a second, but still do that with kindness, you know, and not judging others. So like, there's so many nuances in how getting out of our comfort zone can be done well, but the underlying factors are are knowing ourselves and trusting ourselves and knowing that we have a right to boundaries and being with partners that are doing the same for themselves and for us. I think that's smartly said, you know, that boundaries, you know, there are really two pieces to consider there. One is that you have some boundaries that are going to be red lines, things that you don't want to cross, and you need to feel empowered to say, these are my limits, and I don't want to go any further than that. And that's about establishing the trust and intimacy with a partner and maybe even having safe words and other things so that you can ensure that your boundaries are respected. But by the same token, sometimes the boundaries we set aren't necessarily red lines. We're just sticking to that comfort zone that you mentioned. And so we might be depriving ourselves of some opportunities for pleasure because we just have this restricted or limited idea of what we think we like. And when it comes to sex, it's often the case that you don't know what you like until you try it. And yep. that, that's where really exploring your body, exploring your sexuality can help you to unlock all of these new and different sources of pleasure. And so stepping a little bit out of that comfort zone occasionally in a safe way with a trusted partner can be a really great thing for expanding your sexual horizons. Yes. And thank you. Because you, I was like, oh, I should write down how he just said that. <laughs> that was so much more concise. <laughs> But I, you know what I found sometimes when I've worked with couples is that like this higher desire person who really wants to explore and be adventurous with all sorts of things. And then they have a partner who's not. But when that partner then is willing to step out of their comfort zone a little bit, their higher desire partner is like, yes, game on everything, you know, and I have to tell that person, I was like, oh, honor what they did for them. That was a tiny step on the continuum for you. For them, that was a huge step. Give them the space to have just done that one thing. Don't pile up all these 40 other things that you've been excited to try. Like give them space to acclimate that they've just broadened their comfort zone. Let them, you know, sort of marinate in the experience, see what they liked and didn't like about it. And then also, I mean, that's how we build emotional resilience is that we build comfort with discomfort. Give them some space for that to like, settle in their brains and in their emotions and don't just pile more things on because they're just going to shut down. They're going to go back to that comfort zone and, and I don't blame them. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up this idea of, you know, how we can be a good and supportive partner. And that was actually going to be my next question was specifically about how we can be a supportive partner for somebody who maybe is really insecure. So let's say you feel good mm -hmm. about yourself and you don't have insecurities and anxieties that are interfering with your sex life in the bedroom, but your partner's insecurities are causing an issue and leading them to avoid sex or not be present. And so in that way, it can be undermining your sex life for, for both of you. So what do you do? How can you be a supportive partner to somebody who has a lot of personal insecurity and help them build up their sexual self-confidence. Yeah. Well, the first place my head goes, because I've seen this enough over the years, is that if you're this person who feels very confident in yourself and, you know, and doesn't understand why your partner is, it seems to be undermining themselves all the time, really look at, aren't you playing a role in that at all? Because I've seen particularly with, I'm going to like sort of older generations of heterosexual men, 
they will have an ongoing commentary on women that are just walking in front of them on the street and stuff like that or passing in front of the car when they're in the car with their partner or their wife. And like that ongoing commentary is having an impact on your partner and your partner's sense of self and self-esteem and feeling like they are constantly being judged for what their bodies look like. So that is a starting point. Like, are you, are you doing or saying that, or are you always flirting with younger women? You know, something like that, or younger men. Like, are you doing something that actually is feeding your partner's insecurities? I want everybody to have freedom, but realize like if, if your partner's struggling with stuff, you might have a role in that unwittingly in ways you don't realize. So that's a first place to look. I mean, the second place is obviously just, there's a fine line, you know, I want folks to be like, make sure they're being very complimentary, genuinely complimentary of their partners and looking for places to do that. However, partners that oftentimes, if you're really struggling with insecurities, you're just going to reject all of what they're saying anyway, and not accept it and not take it in, which then the person who's giving those compliments just feels like, why do I even say this stuff? And I get it. You know, they feel like it's just like bouncing off a wall. So we can't make somebody feel good about themselves unless they're working on that for themselves, especially when it's stuff around body image or sexual insecurities that are things that we have so much negativity around in our society. And that can be really deeply wired into us and our sense of self-worth and judgment of self like that. We need to work on those things for ourselves. That is our only chance of overcoming it because otherwise, like I, you know, I used the word insidious before. So, you know, one approach potentially is like, hey, can we go to some counseling together or some coaching? And, and, but don't, don't throw your partner under the bus and be like, you need to go talk to a therapist. Be like, hey, let's do this together. So look at it as a teamwork thing, or maybe let's go take a Tantra class together or something where we actually really doesn't matter at all what we look like. We really drop into the energy of our bodies and connecting with sexual energy with each other. Doing things together as a team that then build up their sense of security with who they are and with you and their, your sexual energy as a team together. So yeah, that's one place I go. But I mean, that's, that's a tough battle to take on. You can't take yeah. it on for someone else. You recognize your role in it, but then they need to do the work themselves. Yeah, no, and I think you bring up a really important point. And, you know, it sort of reminds me of how I myself was at a certain earlier stage in life where I was a very insecure person, and I could not accept a compliment. And if somebody complimented me, whether it was on looks or something else, it was always finding an external attribution for it and not being willing to or able to accept it. And and so you're so right that you know, you can do and say all the right things, but your partner has to want to be open to it and, and be willing to change. And so it is this, this team effort where it's got to be all parties, you know, kind of working together. So I wish there was a simple, easy solution, like just compliment your partner more and it'll get better, but it might not work out that way. Yeah. And I mean, and knowing that a lot of, you know, our deep-seated insecurities are things that come from childhood experiences. Um, yeah. and shitty stuff that other people did to us and, you know, societal messages around us and, and such things. And so those are, those are heavy topics that require a lot of courage and vulnerability to be able to work through. And if your partner's going through stuff like that, just, you know, support them, love them, give them the space to do that. Yeah. Now we're running short on time, but I have one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is your book from madness to mindfulness, because I think it's a really great resource for expanding on a lot of the things we've been talking about today. And it's really aimed at helping people to reinvent their sex lives and begin a new sexual journey. So can you just tell us briefly a little bit about the book and what it can do for readers? Yeah. So the tagline is reinventing sex for women. And so my target market specifically is, as I've mentioned before, one of my specialty areas is, is um, folks that were assigned female at birth and raised with all of those values and impositions around what their body should look like and what, how they should be sexually and how they shouldn't be and how they should act. And then are adults now as women in our society, you know, trying to navigate all of this and figuring out how to experience healthy desire and expression of their sexual needs and wants, how to work through their insecurities and body image topics and how to be really responsible around all of that. So yeah, so that's, a, you know, the big picture. It's, it's very much um, 
it, I'm a sociologist, so it's grounded in sociology and initially in some research studies just for women to know all of these things you're struggling with. You are not alone and you are normal. Like this is the cultural context that has cultivated these things you're struggling with that you may think are your personal flaws or that you're broken in some way. You are not. We are all a product of our societies. We can't not be. So that as a foundational point and then teaching mindfulness skills, these skills about how to be present with what we're feeling inside and thinking and then what's happening outside of us and then not not judging it. And like I said, taking it to the point of even feeling kindness and compassion towards ourselves. Like that is a fundamental rewiring for many women around how they approach their bodies and how they approach sexual topics. And it is pretty foundational for being able to overcome sexual shame in a healthy way and sexual embarrassment, and then to be able to apply that to relationships. And how do you have, how do you stay present in a difficult conversation with your partner that you either want to lash out at them or get angry, or you want to retreat emotionally, or you want to just pound your wine, or you want to go scroll Instagram for the next hour and, 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 you know, numb yourself or disconnect. And that's often what we do when things are uncomfortable. And so this, this is fundamentally a book about learning how to be comfortable with uncomfortable things, because that is at the heart of empowerment. I mean, that women's empowerment, that word has been used for so long now and, and overused, but it really is the best word I know, because when we have choices we didn't have before, that is the epitome of empowerment. And so it ex expands our choices because we're able to stay present we're able to think through and realize what's going on in a situation and what our emotions are, and we're able to make new choices. And whether that's when we're judging ourselves around body image or we're in a difficult conversation with a partner, we're trying to overcome sexual shame from our childhood, we want to step outside our comfort zone and try something new sexually. These are skills that apply to all of these contexts and so much more. And then yeah. I have tons of coaching exercises on how to put all different aspects of this in action, which is short little activities to try every day. You could do them alone or you could do them with a partner. And then also, you know, one of the chapters I'm most proud of is how do we not pass this on to the next generation of young women? And how can we play a role in being part of the solution instead of part of the problem? And that really matters to me as a sociologist. Yeah. Thank you for your amazing work and for this really wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your book? Yeah. So my main hub for everything is my website, drjensden.com. It's D-R-J-E-N-N-S-D-E-N. -E -E Frankly, if you go to Google or Bing or whatever, type in any version of Dr. Jen's Den, you will find my stuff. <laughs> so that's where my TEDx talks are there. I have a really poignant consent violation story that I share. My book's on there, my podcast's on there. Just, you know, I've, I've been at this for a long time. So there is a lot of material on there and the links to my social media pages because I would love if folks like my approach to stuff, if they would follow me and join in those conversations there. Yeah. So check out From Madness to Mindfulness and be sure to follow Dr. Jen on social media. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.